powered by Adept Group. This is the Unpacking Excellence Podcast with Daniel Beardsworth. Daniel Beardsworth. Bringing together top packaging professionals to share insight and knowledge on all things packaging. Now, introducing your host, Daniel Beardsworth. Thanks for joining us on Adept Packaging's Unpacking Excellence Podcast. My co-host for today's episode is Adept's own Robbie Budiu. And we're joined by Lisa Pellegrino of the Center for Eco-Technology. Uh, Robbie and, and Lisa, how are you doing today? Doing great. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you both for making some time to chat with me. Um, Lisa, can you tell me a little bit how you kind of got into you know, working with, with uh, trash and, and kind of got interested in sustainability in general? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say I've been for like over a decade, maybe decade and a half, I've been fascinated and frustrated with waste. I think it really was birthed when I joined AmeriCorps right after undergrad and uh, lived in a cabin in the woods in Douglasville, Georgia. And it's just like really taken by how much natural beauty there was around me and then putting pieces together around, you know, like asking myself, why are we trashing this beautiful place? So, you know, that kind of set off a journey of systems thinking, studying, sustainability, uh, really focus again on you know, waste reduction, waste elimination, and, you know, really inspired by nature and how we're surrounded by these elegantly closed systems that, you know, one organism's trash is another organism's food uh, and seeing how can we kind of reharmonize and mimic that a little bit more. Can you talk a little bit about what the Center for Ecotechnology is and what you do in your current role? Sure, absolutely. Uh, the Center for Ecotechnology, they're an environmental nonprofit. And we've been helping people and businesses save energy and reduce waste uh, for over 45 years, like I mentioned. It's very well, well seasoned. And um, we offer practical solutions to you know, save money, always looking for that win-win and increase the health and comfort of homes, you know, help businesses perform better. Um, we do this through a lot of different initiatives and programs uh, with our you know, leadership and our Wasted Food Solutions program. And that, you know, is throughout the country, as well as administering statewide recycling assistance programs um, through partnering with, you know, governmental agencies. We also actually operate the largest reclaimed building material store in New England. Uh, that's called the Eco Building Bargains. And that's in Springfield, Mass. And we also have worked, uh, you know, with energy efficiency homes and commercial buildings and high performance buildings. That was a pretty um, kind of broad swath there. Um, what, specifically, like kind of in your day-to-day, -day, uh, what do you focus on? Sure. So uh, official titles, business recycling specialist. So essentially that looks like going to different businesses, whether they're restaurants or food manufacturers, um, and looking at what are their operations, you know, how can we be reducing the source that's generated of waste? And then, you know, what are the recycling solutions there to implement? And just working with business owners and leaders to um, to be diverting from the the landfill. It was um you know interesting to hear you mention there talking about kind of get trying to get the like you know, double benefit of, of saving money and being more sustainable because that's something we often talk about with clients. Um, you know, uh, there's sometimes some upfront investment in making things more sustainable, but really a mm -hmm. lot of the things you can do on the packaging side to make things more sustainable also end up being cost saving efforts. Um, Robbie, you, you find that often in the clients you work with, don't you? Yes, definitely. Sometimes it's uh... We find ourselves, okay, um, let's find a sustainability option and, okay, will that, will that cost less or will it cost more? And sometimes what happens is if it costs more, it's very difficult to make that change. So it's very important to have 
a change where um, at the end of the day, we, we start seeing um, benefit financially. Um, it's hard to see it in the short term, um, like in, in terms of like reusability, uh, but in long term, you might be able to see it as you have more and more reuse of a certain um, returnable package or, or something like that. Lisa, Robbie's actually working right now on, on um, we have a, we do a monthly webinar, what we call a learning share, and, and he's presenting one in, in, in a few weeks here about kind of the hierarchy of waste and how we can think about that for, um, you know, planning packaging in terms of using the least harmful things that we can. You know, when we think about that, the, the least preferred option is generally sending things into landfills. Um, but I know that you have some kind of different thoughts on that. How, how do you think we can reframe our concept of landfills to help them play their necessary role, but also to you know, create this kind of more sustainable circular world that we're talking about? Sure, no, it's a, a good uh, question, especially on like the reframe, right? So like landfills, I mean, I, I guess I see them as necessary because essentially we lack a more economical alternative. You know, it's so, I've kind of long thought that so long as it's cheaper to bury a ton of trash than to recycle it, we're not going to really see the kind of systemic change that we need to, you know, meaningful address waste issues. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm really into systems thinking. Are you familiar with systems thinking? Um, yeah, we, I think we often, you know, talk about that sort of like cradle to grave type approach to the stuff. Is, is that what you mean by systems thinking? Or do you mean more like the, the um, sort of infrastructure that we have for waste management and recycling? Um, yeah, kind of a little bit of both, right? And like looking at what are the different pieces here? How do they affect each other? What are the leverage points in, you know, addressing some of these challenges? I actually have like a favorite quote by Buckminster Fuller. He's this American architect and like systems theorist and um, inventor he did the geodesic dome and he has this quote around you never change things by fighting the existing reality to change something you have to build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete right so I think that really ties in with landfills around them being this stopgap measure that we have while we figure out better systems that will make them obsolete and, you know landfills I think can can actually be not necessarily necessary, but can play their part if there's like a whole systems redesign, especially in the context of like trench composting with organics. Now I know packaging, you know, materials, is a big, big world happening now around, you know, material selection with um, compostability. Uh, but just to kind of go back to this like systems, you know, uh, perspective with, with, you know, distributed versus centralized systems, right? So you think of like electric generation with sustainability and how can we like decentralize that versus build these large centralized power plants. It's, it's something that like, like when I was studying, you know, in grad school, uh, how can I get like a degree in just waste reduction, right? It wasn't really possible. I had to find a program that was an MBA in sustainable systems. And, you know, some of the classes I came across that while I was looking at different programs were like essentially trying to teach me engineering and how to properly line a landfill. And I was like, yeah, that's just... <laughs> Not what I want to learn, um, you know, but landfilling organics, I think in like a distributed decentralized manner, actually, you know, utilizing something that's a term called ecosystem services, right? All those macro and micro decomposers that very efficiently convert food scraps into organic nutrients um, that are redistributed back to the soil and plants and, you know, and insects, I think is, is actually really elegant. And, and that's like uh, a kind of application of landfills that I could foresee like continuing on into the future. 
I think that's one of the things that's sort of frustrating to think about when you think about how food waste going into into the, the garbage and winding up in landfills is that it could be really good for you know the soil and things like that. But when it fits into landfills as we kind of currently use them, just it, it isn't as beneficial. Uh, it, it's, it's a lost opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Misha, um, I know you you mentioned in, in your um, in your blog that that, um, that for like landfills, it's usually basically we're just encapsulating all of the waste and it's just a time capsule. Um, is there any opportunity for like learning from? Um, you had mentioned a um, a town in Japan, and I'm not going to attempt to say the name of the town, uh, but uh, they're a zero waste town. Like, is there learnings from there that we can use? Um, oh. You know, like that maybe we need to reinvent the wheel on how landfills are structured or the way we have landfills um, and have this collection, this method of collection. I know it's pretty extreme that they have 45 sub <laughs> sub collections, um, but is there something that we um, that's more efficient in a larger scale um, versus something that's done in just one community? Oh, Ravi, no, it's a, a great point. Yes, Kamikatsu, I believe is how you say the name of the town in Japan, that yes, they are a community that, that sorts their discards into 13 types and 45 categories of, of waste segregation. Uh, I think that is, I mean, if you think about like, what is waste, right? It, it's like this, it is effectively this amalgamation of different materials that are deemed worthless. So how do you bring that value back to those materials? And it really is through source separation. And I don't know if either of you are familiar with the study of biomimicry, this methodology of like looking at how does nature do things? And, uh, you know, I, I, if I could take time off to go study something again, right, I'd be kind of posing that question of like, how does nature do that source separation for that then redistribution of those, you know, what are effectively their, whether they're biological nutrients or technical nutrients, you know, with different polymers and metals and such. I think we're, you know, unlikely to have a system here in, any, in the near future anyway, where people are kind of sorting their trash into, into like 13 different categories. But do you think that there's kind of anything we can learn from that in terms of like, maybe just separating out the things that will we'll compost easily and, and making it, um, you know, sort of having two streams then for things that would go to a landfill and, um, you know, things that can be easily composted? Absolutely. I, I totally see what now, yeah, picking up what you're putting down and, and this notion that we've spent the last like three decades trying to implement and expand our recycling infrastructure in the U.S., whereas like, right, composting has just been there this whole time. And it really is, you know, was it alive? Uh, it's it's kind of like the question you can use in terms of like, what is this material and what do I do with it? You know, and if it was alive, if it came from the earth, that's where it should you know, return back. And I think you bring up a, a, a great point in that kind of as much as I am hesitant to, to be like, yes, we can we can do this with like a binary system. Um, I think, yeah, separating just organics, compostables, you know, from non-compostables, because right, when you get into the recycling of materials, you're talking about not just, you know, glass and, you know, the seven plus different categories of resin identification codes that are in those chasing arrows indicated by numbers, you know, with seven being other, <laughs> kind of indicating the increasing complexity and, and uh, you know, lack of, of clarity or what is this material type. Um, with organics, it's, it's a much more straightforward. So I feel like we actually are on the precipice of this like really exciting time with organics where, you know, a, a greater simplicity can be created that has sort of plagued the recycling sector um, and the confusion 
the understandable confusion that pervades it. Yeah, I, I think something that we talk about when we talk about compostable packaging, um, sort of one of the obstacles to that being more widely adopted is that even among the communities that do have composting centers, uh, most of them are just for, you know, like the, the organics and there are or even fewer that'll take compostable packaging. So it really is, you know, kind of a, a, an infrastructure thing that's going to require a lot of different thinking. Totally. And, and actually, uh, I mean, as much as I want it to be, you know, as, as straightforward and simplified, I was really impressed to see uh, several years ago, there was a municipality in California that had put yet another kind of, um, you know, qualifier in front of compostable, right? So we know there's like commercial compostable materials, materials that will only break down in commercial facilities. Um, then there's like backyard compostable materials, right? Materials that will break down just in a mere, you know, backyard pile. Uh, this town in, I want to say it was Monterey, um, you know, had this ordinance, you know, that was saying uh, packaging has to be marine compostable, right? And then so that really kind of then goes into what does that mean to create something that's going to just essentially break down, ideally become a nutrient for the ocean marine environment should it get there? Yeah, I think there's you know, ways to go until we've got, um, you know, at least a common form of packaging that'll work that way. But it's good to know that there are, are people out there that are kind of trying to, to push that, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of those ordinances. Yeah, there's definitely going to be a lot of learnings that we're going to get from California, I feel like, in the next couple of years, because they've, uh, you know, their, their goal, I think it was something like they want to have 75% of, uh, you know, organic waste composted instead of having it sent to the, the landfill. I don't know by what year, um, but a challenge that we have from a packaging standpoint is that um, composting, you know, like uh, you had uh, um, mentioned Lisa is the, there's industrial and then there's home composting. And we do have a material PLA, which, you know, it's it's being sold as something that's compostable, but then it's, it's a struggle because that's, you know, like you can't just throw it into your home compost and then have it, you know, made into matter that we're gonna use in our garden. It has to be processed where there's higher, you know, there's more heat in an industrial composting setting, a more controlled area where they're able to, you know, successfully, you know, degrade that, that material. So it's great that there is legislation being put in place where, you know, there's gonna be more rules on what, how to label things and what can be sent where. Mm -hmm. Kind of sticking on the topic of packaging, what are some things that you think packaging engineers and packing designers should think about when we want to reduce the amount of material that winds up in a landfill or, or even worse, you know, winds up, like you said, in, in the water or as land pollution? Yeah, I mean, talk to recyclers, right? I think that's a really great I know that's not as pointed of a, you know, as prescriptive, but I think just having these conversations, talking with recyclers, MRF operators, you know, material recovery facilities, um, the ones that are actually doing the sorting and processing, you know, of these materials, the very existence of waste, it kind of is indicative of a design flaw. Um, so, so if you think about it, like, why would we ever design waste into a system, right, into something? Um, and, and so, of course, you know, there's the three R's, right? How can you reduce packaging? And, you know, that I think has sort of led to unintended consequences around lightweighting and, and such with packaging. But, you know, 
we've, we've touched very briefly, right, on packaging and reuse, um, you know, recyclability, of course, like how can the packaging be made out of highly recyclable materials, you know, whether it's cardboard, aluminum is infinitely recyclable, right, it never loses its material integrity. But I, I think having these conversations, particularly with Merck operators, you know, and recyclers could be really beneficial. And, you know, asking yourself if you're a material, uh, if you're a packaging designer, you know, what, is, what do my consumers have access to in terms of disposal options, right? Is, are things going to be recyclable? Should they be compostable? You know, I mentioned those like levels of compostability. And, you know, I think it's something that I'm curious, like if would, a, you know, adept consider maybe even convening product designers and recyclers, you know, for a discussion based on this very question. I, I think that'd be really exciting. That, that will be an exciting conversation. Um, Robbie, end of life is something that you guys really often talk about when you're working directly with clients on packaging, right? Kind of thinking about sort of what, what's going to happen after, uh, after it's done being used, whether that be, you know, by consumers or if it's, you know, something that's going to a, a business customer, um, you know, end of life is an important consideration, right? Yeah, definitely. It does play, you know, especially when we're doing our LCA, so life cycle analysis, it plays a huge role on what our um, results come out of. And um, the, the biggest uh, the player is, you know, making sure that we pick materials that are utilizing existing streams that we have right now. So Lisa, when you mentioned, you know, like having the MRFs involved in these discussions, it, it's very important. I agree with you because if we can have more streams produced uh, where like, you know, diff we have separated and have sent to more streams. We could be, uh, you know, instead of having things sent to landfills, we have packages sent to to these MRFs or sent to wherever it needs to go to be decomposed. Um, and it would greatly improve our LCA value. But before that even happens, the, the biggest thing that I find is that consumer education is even important. I mean, we need to educate our consumer to let them know, okay, it's okay to send this into the into the recycling bin. I, I know like right now, HDPE and PET is, uh, you know, most widespread for recyclability, but we have labels called how to, how to recycle labels and it guides consumers. And they just have a, a new guidance that was sent out that polypropylene now is considered widely um, recyclable. And so, Labels and packages are really important, I feel like, that to help guide consumers to understand what can be recycled, what can't, and where to take, where to take things. Um, I know like even a, a simple clear PET bottle, I, the number is uh, mind-blowing that like only a small percentage of that clear PET bottle gets into the recycling stream, and when it gets sent to the landfill, we need to educate the consumers to let them know, you know, don't throw it in your trash, throw it into your recycling bin so then it gets sent. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that not, it's not only saving the environment, but it's a, uh, instead of sourcing virgin PET material, they can reuse this when it's you know cleaned up and grinded up into a new, new pellet. Um, and, and at the end of the day, we're gonna start using, um, you know, we're gonna have to source less and less oil to produce these resins in the future. Lisa, I know you mentioned previously that you worked at TerraCycle and then kind of reading some of the things you wrote, I know you think a lot about reverse logistics and sort of the role they play in keeping things out of a landfill. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what the obstacles are to, to collecting waste before it hits the landfill and, you know, diverting it to somewhere where it can be more useful and, um, you know, kind of what we can learn from how other countries have handled that? Yeah, sure. 
reverse logistics, right? It's like, how do we get the stuff back uh, collection? And, and I think, as, you know, to answer that simply, I think time and the logistics of it, right? It's, it's uh, I mean, not to get, you know, too, too out there, right? But if you think about just the physical manifestation, like how trash is like this physical manifestation of our shadow, it's right. It's like what nobody wants to look at, you know, people want it away, you know, that magical place away. And, uh, you know, most of us don't want to deal with it, right? So we often take the path of least resistance, which often includes just burying or, or burning the majority of our trash. And I think, you know, what we discard kind of naturally falls to the bottom of everyone's priority list. So I feel like that piece kind of has to be at least acknowledged, right? In terms of why aren't we making the time for this and why aren't we figuring out the logistics? I think you got to kind of honor where we're at, you know, and people's priority list. Are you familiar with the food waste hierarchy? I don't think I am, Ravi. Is that something that you've sort of looked at when you're, you're working on projects? Um, not too much. I, I could use a refresher here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just a really kind of very instructive, right? The same way we have the three R's, right? In terms of like least preferred, uh, most preferred disposal method. You know, the very smart folks at the EPA came up with this one, say, a couple of decades ago. And, you know, it's essentially... The first thing, of course, you want to do is source reduction, but then you want to feed hungry people, you know, then feed hungry animals. Then we're looking at maybe anaerobic digestion or compost and the landfill um, is the last. And so I do think that it, it's so much of the, the logistics is about matchmaking and it's this ecosystem of what do people have to get rid of and connecting them with the service providers, even if it's just something from like a commercial industrial level of like pallets, you know, wooden pallets, how can we get those wooden pallets back to, you know, wood refurbisher, recycler of those, you know, of those wooden pallets. Um, cardboard, same thing, highly recyclable material. The market for cardboard is booming, right? Thanks to e-commerce, uh, you know, bottles and cans, you see incredible, again, ecosystem of services forming, particularly in the states in the U.S. that have bottle bills, right? So I think there's a lot to be said about when you attach a monetary value to a material. So in the case of bottle bills, you know, whether it's a five cent in some states, 10 cent, I want to say Vermont has even like a 15 cent, you know, deposit value. It incentivizes people to create these ecosystems of services of collection and processing and so that just, I think, kind of facilitates the whole thing. It makes it so people can make time for getting these materials back into, you know, a circular material flow. You know, yeah, I mean, it's like some of the numbers that I was looking up uh, recently for work, you know, states like Michigan, they have an 89% return rate, you know, and, and Oregon is an 86% return rate for bottles and cans where there's a 10 cent deposit value. So Right. I, I mean, it's good to kind of kick it back and think like, what's like the last thing you brought back to a store, you know, to get reused or recycled? And why did you do that? Yeah, so it's a different way of thinking about reverse logistics instead of designing a, a system for collection, just building in an incentive for for people to take it back to where it needs to go. Um, it's a, a, a different approach that, uh, as you mentioned, is, is working really well in some places. Totally. Daniel, also, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up RVMs or reverse vending machines, because I just, I feel like there's a lot of potential for it to actually become fun, let alone the economic incentive there, just around, you know, Tomra's a company that makes these big, beautiful reverse vending machines where anybody can come and just bring back their bottles and cans and get that, you know, collect that money. They're really big in Europe. 
I know you're kind of asking about like other countries and what they're doing. You know, we touched on Kamikatsu Japan and uh, Brazil has this very established culture of uh, catadores, I believe is the name. And they're, they're not trash pickers, right? But, but recyclable materials pickers. And, um, you know, Italy is, is doing a lot around zero waste. They went from, I want to say a 17% diversion rate in, in 2003 to a 63% diversion rate in, in 2021 and a lot of that is around separate collection of organics became mandatory so there's a lot to be said around how policy can inform some of these changes but I do often see that as like the stick and I am personally somebody that just favors the carrot for sure uh, but I, I think both have their, their place to to play and in Italy I think it's Capanori is a town that has a zero waste research center and they are literally going through what is in the rest of this trash and how do we identify these materials that are still present in the waste stream and research kind of new zero waste design and innovation, you know, while engaging students and, and scientists? And I think that's a really innovative model that we could potentially be learning from here. Kind of on a lighter note, when after you shared the, the piece you had written on Substack with us, um, Ravi and I were talking and he said it kind of made him think a lot about the movie Moana, uh, which he's seen probably more times than he'd like to with his two little ones. Um, <laughs> But there, there's a you know part of there where they've got a, a you know the coconut tree and they're talking about how they use the different parts of it for different purposes so they're not wasting any materials. Can you think of any other kind of real world examples of those sort of zero waste systems that have inspired you? I love that. I have not seen Moana. I'm gonna have to check it out even if just for this coconut scene. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I liked it. Like who is like the OG? of zero waste packaging, right? Like I, I'm like, I want you both to guess. I'll give you a hint, like it's a dessert. You probably had it recently this summer. Like a, a watermelon? <laughs> I mean, fruit is a classic example, right? But like, I mean, right, think about, you know, you want a cool summertime treat, you go get that, go to the ice cream shop and you can get your bowl and your plastic spoon, but you could also get it in a cone and then you get to eat the cone, right? So like, I love, the potential of edible packaging now granted that's not going to be across the board applicable but i get inspired by other kind of existing zero waste systems they're like right under our nose and they're not even often marketed as such but like kegs for beer right that's a zero waste system that just by the very you know design is not producing really any aside from the you know carbon used to move it around any material you know negative output there's, of course, like bulk sections at, at grocery stores, but, you know, I think a lot to be said, too, about growing your own food, right? <laughs> Not everybody can do that, but, you know, when you, when you grow something, you get to eat it right then and there, and it's the freshest. I've seen some neat stuff, too, with, like, collapsible and nesting containers and, and crates that farmers, they've been using for, what, centuries now. And, and like you brought up, nature's packaging with, like, watermelons, bananas, corn, avocados, and it's interesting to think what what might packaging designers learn from those systems? Yeah, and I think what you mentioned about uh, ice cream cones, I wasn't even thinking sort of about a, a cone as, as packaging, but it really is. I guess that's something that's probably more applicable for, for food service than, than uh, you know, food retail. But that mm -hmm. is something that's, that's kind of interesting to think about maybe what other things we could have where you can eat whatever they're served on. Yeah. And, um, you know, like the cone is like modern day, you know, packaging that, that uh, is zero waste. But I, I know like 
in, in the past, like if you go to some countries, I know like in India, there's some temples that you go to and they serve you food on plates made out of leaves. And it's amazing because you eat your food when after you're done finishing the food that there's no garbage really because those leaves go back and they serve as compost and then they're you know they bring nutrients back into the ground and then new trees and new plants grow and you're back to you know getting new trees that give you leaves to make new plates and i think that's uh, something great that we can think about too that you know we, we should think outside of the box think outside of what our norm is and see which how we can bring back to um, zero, zero waste um, designs. Um, kind of while we're on the topic of, of food waste, I think the most common way that we typically think of packaging playing a role in that is just the ways that it can extend, extend shelf life. Um, are there some other ways that, that um, kind of packaging teams at food manufacturers or distributors should think about their work as it relates to reducing food waste? Hmm. Interesting. Question, Daniel. Uh, Ravi, I just want to say how much I really appreciate you sharing that story. Um, it, it's, you know, and you encouraging to think outside the box. I, I mean, I, your question, Daniel, makes me just think like, we don't have it figured out. We are all bozos on the bus. And I find that actually in some ways kind of refreshing as this kind of great equalizer. And that's why I think it's so important to be having these conversations, right? Like none of us is as smart as all of us. And, and the faster those that are studying, you know, sustainability and its applications can connect uh, the, the, you know, farther we'll go. I think about like the scene from Willy Wonka, of, like pure vegetation. Have either of you seen that, that movie in the chocolate room, like the original with Gene Wilder and mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, they go in, everything's edible, edible. you can eat almost everything. And, and uh, I, I think that question of like, maybe a human can't eat it, but how could, you know, potentially other organisms, you know, eat it. And, and it's actually like not even a pie in the sky. There are an increasing amount of uh, startups that are looking at edible packaging, um, whether, you know, it's from agricultural byproducts like agave uh, manufacturing or, or processing um, to even like seaweed, you know, like lollyware, uh, Know, Evo where they, there are these companies that are out there that, like I said, are, are making, you know, these like highly decomposable um, products that, you know, right, maybe it's not going to be fit for human consumption, but how can it feed other living creatures? Yeah, we, um, on a previous episode, I spoke to a, a gentleman named Bob Hawkinson from um, Recede Bioplastics and what he was talking about, um, what they were doing, it's really interesting is they, they work largely in the agricultural field, um, making you know, a, a, a bioplastic that they could use to make bags for fertilizers that when, um, you know, farmers go to use them, they can just cut the bag open and, and you know, kind of put, put it down and it'll just naturally degrade into the soil uh, as things are growing in it. So I think that's one of the exciting things about sort of the, that startup environment and some different ways that technology is pushing us forward is, um, you know, maybe that won't be the one idea, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of ideas in that, in that area that might eventually become a, a breakthrough that really is adopted widely. Yeah, and I, I also feel like there's, I mean, I, there's, there's companies and like restaurants and, and things like that where they're starting to think about the circular economy and getting, uh, you know, things uh, to the composters, but they haven't really closed the circle yet. So like you go, sometimes you go to restaurants and they serve food, like you go to Chipotle, they serve you in, your, in the tray that's made out of uh, pulp. Um, but then 
what's mind boggling is it gets thrown into the trash, um, but there's a huge opportunity there, right? So they, they some, a lot of these restaurants are there almost, um, but I think now it's getting to a point where that loop needs to be closed and you know get sent to the correct place. It's, uh, I, I cringe so many times when I go to like a, a Froyo place and they have these compostable spoons and then I go to all these restaurants and they have these compostable plates and it gets sent to the trash. And I think, like you said, Lisa, earlier, that we need to talk to like the MRFs and talk to the uh, the people who process these things where we, we create a stream where it gets sent back to them and it can be utilized to send to, you know, to the proper places so it gets um, processed. So. Totally. Right. Totally. And, and I think, Ravi, you bring up a, a good point about, you know, uh, using these materials that then aren't even kind of going to that that end result that they were designed for. Um, but I think that really does speak to just how many different actors there are and how many different parts of the system that are all kind of working uh, together or rather not working together. Just even hearing you say that story too, Daniel, about the, the bags, uh, the bioplastic bags, uh, you know, for farmers and thinking about how we even got into sort of this this mess in the first place. Like I, I really am not a fan of those that like demonize uh, plastic. I, I think it's a miracle material when you think about the engineering properties of it, right? And how, you know, there was a, a story I came across a few years ago, just pieces put together for me of like, you know, how all dog food bags, for instance, used to be, you know, or animal feed bags used to be in like just paper bags, but in the whole distribution process, they were losing so much. Uh, of the material of the of the product by you know forklifts puncturing the bags and having spillage that now we have these you know kind of woven polypropylene bags that in the name of preventing food waste right we we wrap the product in and so I, I think there's actually uh it's important to like honor like how did we get here and think about you know how we all there is some good intention here um and and then but really asking you know kind of like thinking about how long is this going to be in use, right? Like, I mean, plastic, the innovations that have taken place around the, you know, the medical industry, uh, transportation, right? There's just no arguing how much it's benefited, you know, humanity as a whole, but those are like durable uses. And I, and I think, you know, the, the single use case is, is where it gets very problematic. And so it is just thinking about, okay, now that we have all these, you know, pieces that we've learned, through trying to optimize supply chains, you know, uh, just just thinking about how do we connect those conversations around the product designers and and those MRF, you know, those MRF operators and the composters, right? Because the composters are also struggling now to figure out what they do with these different, you know, bioplastics uh, that maybe you know have PFAS in them or other problematic materials or you know. It wasn't clear that this wasn't a compostable material, but it went into you know the compost, and so you know we're we're just all trying to figure it out together. Uh, I think that might be kind of a, a good note for us to wrap up on, Lisa. Um, but before we go, if uh, I know you mentioned about the different ways that the Center for Ecotechnology is sort of helping businesses improve their um, you know environmental footprint, if people are interested in getting in touch with you guys and, and working with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, absolutely. Center for Ecotechnology.org is a central website. I'm on LinkedIn. I love I love using LinkedIn, you know, to connect with others just like we did around, hey, we're we're both, you know, 
sustainability professionals trying to figure this out. Let's let's connect, let's talk, and let's share information so that we can advance and go farther together faster. Well, that's a great, great place to wrap up. Um, thank you again for joining us today. And, and Robbie, thanks for being my, my wingman here today. Uh, you obviously have a little more uh, hands-on experience working with this stuff. So always valuable to have your perspective. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it too. Yeah, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Unpacking Excellence with Daniel Beardsworth. Daniel Beardsworth. For more resources on all things packaging, head to our website, adeptpackaging.com. Don't forget to subscribe. And thanks again for listening.